Okay, uh, friends, invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. And uh, I, happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers this morning. Happy Mother's Day to all of you. Um, and the mother of my children loves God's word. But she also reminded me we need to be in Indiana for Mother's Day, so I need to get to it this morning. <laughs> get, get to it. Um, and so if you see us taking off out of here really fast, uh, don't read into that anything other than uh, we need to be in Indiana for lunch. So um, that out of the way, let's turn to God's Word, 1 Peter chapter 3. Verses 18 through 22, short scripture reading this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that, we, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the day of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks, thanks be to God. Indeed, let's pray. God, we, having heard your word, we ask now that um, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the wonderful things that you would have for us in your word. We'd ask um, that even now that the meditation um, of all of our hearts and the words of our mouth would be pleasing to you, our Lord, our God, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Amen. So this morning, we are in a kind of a brief little series here on the ordinary means of grace. And we kind of introduced this idea last week, this ordinary means of grace, or the Latin phrase, media gratiae, which is the term the theologians have given for these means or instruments that God uses, God has chosen to use, these instruments that God has chosen and given us as a means which to convey to believers in an ongoing way through all of life, His grace. Okay? These means of grace. And we introduced uh, the big five last week. Uh, and last week we spent our time focusing on the preaching of the Word, the Word as a means of grace to us. Today we're going to look at one of the there was a, if there was a two inside of the five that are kind of the big two, the big, big two, there's the big five and then there's the big, big two. The big, big two would be baptism in the Lord's Supper. 
Today we're going to look at baptism. And every year or so, I usually have a baptism class, kind of consider this a baptism class. For those of you who have not been baptized uh, before uh, or ever, um, then, and you would be interested in baptism, you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you profess faith in Christ and would like to know about baptism, um, listen very carefully, and then come and speak to me afterwards. I'd love to talk with you. But baptism is one of the big two. And sometimes it's referred to as a, a sacrament or in more Baptist circles it's referred to as an ordinance. There's two sacraments or two ordinances of the church. Not as in the Roman Catholic would have seven sacraments. It's not like that. There's just two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I want to clarify a little bit uh, a concept that is, a, I think, very helpful in understanding what these means of grace mean or uh, or when we use the word sacrament, sometimes it kind of maybe for some of us kind of sacrament. Ooh, that sounds kind of, you know, high churchish or, you know, Catholic-ish or Romish or something. Um, I want to attempt to dispel you from that kind of fear and not to fear sacrament rightly understood. Or if you want to kind of substitute like Baptists do, substitute the word ordinance in there for baptism, that's fine. But there's a concept here I want to convey uh, that's very important here. And then we'll jump into the rest of our teaching on baptism. And in order to do this, I thought I would use the Westminster Larger Catechism, two questions and two answers to help give words to this very important idea about sacraments and ordinances and about the means of grace. Okay, are you ready for these, these ideas? In the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 162, it asks this question, what is a sacrament? And if you want to, get, whenever you see sacrament, you want to substitute ordinance, that's fine. And it defines it like this. It's a holy ordinance. So there's, your, there's a clue. You could have ordinance in there too. What is an ordinance? Well, it's an ordinance. Or what, what's an ordinance? It's a sacrament. What's a sacrament? It's an ordinance. It's an ordinance... I mean, it's something ordained by Christ himself, instituted by Christ in his church to signify. Okay, I want you to catch that. To signify, seal and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace the benefits of his mediation. To strengthen and increase their faith and all other graces, to oblige them to obedience, to testify and cherish their love and communion with one another, and to distinguish them from those that are without. The main thing I want you to catch there, though, is the signify that those are within the covenant of grace, the benefits of his mediation. The next question, question 163, um, asks this question, what are the parts of this sacrament or ordinance? And I love this. Again, want to catch this. The parts of a sacrament or ordinance are two. This is the concept I want us to begin this morning with. The one, an outward and sensible sign used according to Christ's own appointment. So these are not man-made signs. This is the ones Christ has given, used according to Christ's own appointment. The other, an inward spiritual grace, thereby signified. Okay, I want you to catch those terms. The sign and the thing signified. So kids, if you want to write in your notes, here's the thing. The sign and the thing. 
The sign and the thing that the sign signifies. You're going to hear me say sign and thing signified quite a bit. Those are very important concepts to grasp. In helping us to think through how it is that God communicates to us in a real tangible way in our Christian life, his grace to us. That although we're dealing with spiritual realities, he actually gives us things in the world as a tangible expression to convey those things. Or here, if we could put it in a little chart like this. Think of the sign as um, the tangible, outward, physical, visible, earthly. Okay? And the thing that the sign signifies as an intangible or the inward work, the unseen, the invisible, spiritual work that is done in us or that corresponds with the heavenly realm. You got this idea in your mind? Because this is very important to help understand things like baptism in the Lord's Supper. Let me give a couple of examples, and it's helpful to, to keep this, this part in mind, these two aspects, and to keep in mind this truth. In order for the immortal, invisible God, the eternal God, to communicate His grace to us, He, in this world, He uses real tangible things. Okay? That's, that's an important thing to think about. He uses real and tangible things. And I, you could give examples of this all throughout the scriptures. Let me just give one kind of key example. And think of the, the great moment of redemption in the Old Testament. The deliverance of God's people out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt. Through God's judgment on those who are perpetrating the, the bondage, and he leads them out and then leads them into a promised land. What a great picture. God has given us in history an event there among the people of Israel in the Old Testament as a perfect picture of what he's going to do with his elect, the redeemed. Right? We, we are all, the, the scriptures tell, speak of us being in bondage to sin. And God releases us from the bondage and debt of sin and freely delivers us out and he leads us to our home in the kingdom with him in his presence forever. Right? Have you ever thought about the, the Exodus is really kind of a, a little picture that God places within human history to say, and see what I did here? That's what I'm going to do. But notice that in the middle of that amazing event. And I mean, when I say in the middle, I mean literally in the middle of the event. The night of the event of God's deliverance of his people out of their bondage from slavery in Egypt and so the simultaneous judgment on those who are perpetrating that bondage, he says, I want you to have a meal. All of you take a one-year-old lamb and you're going to sacrifice that lamb on the outside of your home. You're going to apply the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And then you're going to roast the ant lamb and eat that lamb with the unleavened bread. Passover. Right in the middle. They didn't invent Passover 
a year later and said, you know what we should do? That was a pretty big event. Let's memorialize it. You know, it was about a year ago, wasn't it? Yeah, let's, let's do this. Oh, and we can kind of recreate. No, God gave them that, those instructions in the middle of that event. A tangible, real expression of kind of what, what he was going to do. So think of it as kind of like the Passover lamb and the shedding of the, putting the blood on the doorposts is the, the sign, the thing that this whole sign signifies is this great act of deliverance of his people. The Lord's Supper, which we're going to get to in a subsequent sermon, Lord willing, uh, we will unpack this sign and uh, things signified even more. But, e- but even then, we just took the Lord's Supper and the bread and the wine then are the tangible signs. They're the real things that signify the thing, the broken body and shed blood of Christ, right? God gives signs. He's chosen to do this. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul uh, brings this idea home in Romans chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Let me read this passage, and then I'm going to read a comment on this passage from John Calvin. This is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. He, and here he's speaking of Abraham, he received the sign. You catch it? There's, there's the word, the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make them the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now, you can get lost in this whole circumcision thing, but understand what he's saying here is he's giving them the sign of circumcision afterward. And he says that that is a sign of the righteousness that has been given to him that he receives by faith. Okay, that's the thing signified. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, and the thing is the thing that matters, that you are justified by faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he's pointing out, and he goes, by the way, you, you Judaizers who think you need to be circumcised in order to become Jewish, in order to become a Christian, he says, you're actually getting the order completely mixed up from how God actually did it. Abraham was justified before then. The, the circumcision was the sign. Justification by faith was the thing signified for Abraham and his descendants. So you get the idea. The point is, and this is what Calvin once notes here in this, this passage, and it's on the screen to, to follow along. We have indeed here a remarkable passage with regard to the general benefits of sacraments. Okay, If you've got an itch, just switch ordinances. According to the testimony of Paul, they are seals by which the promises of God are in a manner imprinted on our hearts and the certainty of grace confirmed. God uses real things to to confirm for us. And Calvin again, and though by themselves they profit nothing. Okay, the sign all by itself. It's not, it is not by, by itself a magical thing that just doing it does it, confers it. We'll get into that in a moment. By themselves, they're nothing. The sign, if there's nothing that the sign signifies, then it doesn't mean anything. 
And though by themselves they profit nothing, yet God has designed them to be the instruments of his grace. And he effects by the secret grace of his spirit that they should not be without benefit in the elect. Okay? The signs by themselves mean nothing. However, present with faith, those signs mean a lot. They mean a lot. He continues, um, he continues by saying this, that uh, even though the signs are dead and unprofitable symbols to the reprobate, meaning to unbelievers, and he goes on to say that unbelief deprived them of their effect. Nevertheless, to those who believe what they signify, he says these signs are, quote, sacred symbols uh, are testimonies by which God seals his grace in our hearts. How many, for, for how many of you, is this a new kind of idea? I grew up in a church tradition where this was completely foreign. So grateful to, to see from the scriptures and to see throughout church history that, that God actually operates in the world through signs, through real tangible things. Now, I wanted to uh, point out a couple of errors so on this, this understanding of these sacraments or ordinances uh, as a means of grace to us, um, I, I want to uh, prevent us from falling onto either side of a ditch. And here's the two errors that I, that I see happen in regard to understanding the sacraments or ordinances. Okay? Error number one is the signs in themselves do the thing that they signify. That's an error. And this would be the, the, uh, the understanding of the sacraments in the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And the phrase that would be used, the Latin expression for this, would be ex opere operato, which in kind of my uh, wooden literal translation would be, they work by the work worked. It's just by the work, it works. In other words, you just do it and it works. Faith not needing to be present in the one to whom to who receives it. This is also correct, uh, connected to the sacerdotal understanding. I mean, it, if the priest does it, then it's then it's effective. So, if you've heard of uh, like baptismal regeneration, that comes from this kind of idea that well, you have to do the baptism in order for you to even be saved to be regenerated, and it's so closely connected. Right? So the error here is that the sign in themselves do the thing that it signifies. In other words, it kind of blurs the distinction between sign and the thing signified. That's the one error. Here's the other error. Because growing up, I wanted to avoid the one error. And I tended to, I think, in my church upbringing, to fall into the other error. And if I would guess, this would be probably the error that most of us would fall into. Here's the other error. Since they are not the thing, the signs, since the signs are not the thing, the sign is not important. That too is an error. Well, what it signifies is really where the action is at. Like a spiritual baptism. Therefore, the sign is kind of optional. I, I know friends who've argued this before. I, I have a, a, a friend who is actually a pastor 
who hasn't been baptized refuses to be baptized because he wants to drive home the idea and he wants to continue to argue, you know what, I am saved by grace through faith alone and it's not, and, and I won't even do the sign because I'm, he's not using sign and signify, but he's saying, I don't want to do the sign because this, the what it signifies is where, where it's really important. I think that's an error too. God has given us, these are not human devised traditions of men sort of things. These are given to us by God himself and think of them as a tremendous gift to us. Something we can taste and see and touch and feel of the spiritual realities. That's a good thing. So let's avoid the two errors that the signs themselves are the thing. No. But let's avoid the other error that since they are not the thing, therefore their sign is not important. That is also an error, and we need to avoid that too. So the verse that I want to, uh, that said, and I think we got the concept here, that's going to be very important for us going forward. That said, I want us to look at how Peter kind of addresses this in the passage that we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Verse 21, Peter says, baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, if you stop there, that's where, that's where some would fall in one of those other two ditches, right? And you could guess which one. Uh, I know friends who are, who are Catholics. I even know friends who are Lutherans who quote this verse to me and have quoted this when we've had discussions or debates about baptism. And they go, hey, baptism, uh, baptism now saves you. And I'm like, dude, you left out so much of that verse. Like, which corresponds to this? Which, mean, which raises the question, well, what is the this? Baptism now saves you. And then what comes after it? Not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Right? So notice what's happening there in that verse, which is often twisted and kind of taken out of context and, and stuff here. And it's in, in truth, it's in a really weird passage about uh, Christ having to go uh, into the prisons, preaching to the spirits in prisons. That, we're not going to address that this morning. I just want to focus on this part here, the baptism. And that what Peter's emphasizing here is it's not as removal of dirt from the body. In other words, it's not the external action of the water that saves. Baptism saves you. Not as the washing, like, you, you know, like water would wash you off. But as an inter, so it's not the external action, it's the internal reality, but the internal reality, an appeal to God for a good conscience. Which I think is Peter's kind of way of saying uh, justification by faith. The clearing of our conscience and our guilt of our sins by coming to God in faith, receiving the grace that he gives us by faith which is only possible by faith in, what does he go on to say? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's the thing. An appeal to God for a clean conscience, salvation by faith, through the work of Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. That's the thing. What's the sign that signifies the thing? Baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this. The sign does not do the work by itself, does not work absent of saving faith, but the sign is not unimportant. 
baptism which corresponds to this. Now I want to get to, well, what's the this? What's the this? In the immediate context here, what does he say? Notice verse 20. Because they, and he's referring to unbelievers that Christ was preaching to. Again, we're not going to get into that. But they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, Peter here is kind of saying, you know what? It, there's, a, there's kind of a picture here for us in the story of Noah and the flood and the ark. God's salvation of Noah in the midst of judgment, right? You need to understand the waters are the waters of judgment. The waters here are, convey drowning. Submersion, I think, is an important part of that. They're, submersion in drowning. I mean, nobody drowns that are not submerged underwater. You see where I'm going on that. But the waters are a judgment there. The waters, waters bring death to all but the eight people. So the waters are a death. And so I think what Peter's kind of saying here is kind of like the waters were the waters of judgment. And the ark carried Noah and his family to deliverance through that death. So likewise, believers are delivered from judgment through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus by the sign of baptism. So that's the thing signified. It's deliverance from judgment and salvation through our union with Jesus Christ, through faith in Him. And so it's kind of like, yeah, like God saved Noah through the flood waters of death. And God delivered Christ from the grave. That's what he does to us. And I'm going to give you a sign of that. And baptism is the sign of that thing signified. So this is, this is what I think he's getting at here when he talks about baptism. Baptism is the sign. Now, what does the word baptism mean? Baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo. And it means to immerse or to dip. Or um, in the Little Scott, the uh, Greek lexicons, Little Scott uh, says to plunge. In the passive, when it's used with the passive sense for the verb, as to be drowned. To be drowned in the Greek. Or to dip and immerse. It's, uh, it's used to convey, uh, let me read to you here from a theological dictionary of the New Testament. To immerse, to sink the ship. So a sunken ship is referred to as having baptizoed. To suffer a shipwreck. It's used in the, the Greek world in, in that way. I've never seen a ship sink by being sprinkled on. I kid, I kid. And it's also used for dyeing of fabrics. That's what baptism conveys. So that's kind of the literal usage of it, but it's also used in a very figurative, uh, figurative way, which is bringing in kind of the idea, the, the concept to it, 
the more abstract part of it. It's bringing it to this idea in a, a figurative sense of it symbolizes very close association and solidarity. It's sometimes used that way. First Corinthians chapter 10 where the Apostle Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, and he's referring to the people of Israel, were all under the cloud. He's talking about their journey away from Exodus to the promised land over that, those years of wandering. All our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, that's through the Red Sea, and all were, he says, baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. So here it's using, in the figurative sense of, uh, we, they, the Israelites were baptized into Moses. There was such close association and solidarity. Or you could put it this way, uh, think of it this way, using the, the term that it's used for dyeing of fabrics. You dye the fabric, you submerge that fabric into the dye, that the color of the dye becomes so closely associated into the fibers of that fabric, that is what happens to baptized Christians into Christ. That it's showing that close association with Jesus Christ. That's the sign. That's what it signifies. Here's some other things it signifies. It signifies the cleansing or washing away of our sins. It signifies our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It signifies deliverance from judgment. Like the flood we talked about earlier. Even in some sense, Pharaoh at the Red Sea. That they were delivered from this instrument of death of water in the flood. So as the flood was the agent of destruction for Noah... Noah's deliverance by God... Through his own judgment was God's salvation. Baptism then was a sign of this, is a sign of that promise. God will save you from death as he did Noah in the flood, and he will save you from death as he did Christ from the grave, hence the end of verse 21. He will do that, and the, that's the thing signified. The sign is baptism. So now I want to go through a couple of questions like the what of baptism, the whom of baptism, the how of baptism, and the now what of baptism. And to do this, we'll use the catechism questions. Question number 97. Um, what is baptism? Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of his giving up himself unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. It's a great answer, right? This question in 97 in our catechism is, is identical to Chapter 29, paragraph 1 of the London Baptist Confession. Notice it's an ordinance of the New Testament. This is not a man-made institution. It is instituted by Jesus Christ himself. After his resurrection, and he's, before he's ascending into heaven, 
Matthew ends, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, to the apostles and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice the link from baptism, or from making disciples to teaching disciples is baptism. It's a sign of our fellowship and union with Christ. We looked at these passages over at Easter, but it's one of my favorite passages. And now you're adding that to your list of Pastor Aaron's favorite passages. Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6. Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. This is what baptism is to symbolize, to, to, to be a sign for us of. That as Christ was resurrected from the dead, He was crucified, dead, put into a tomb, and he was brought back to life. He came out of the tomb alive and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And God says to us, those who believe in him, that same thing will happen to you. And that's the thing signified. The sign is baptism. Baptism. Colossians 2 um, says something similar, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. It's a sign of our remission of our sins, giving up ourselves to God. That's the, the what baptism is. Here's the whom. To whom is baptism to be administered? Baptism is to be administered to all who actually profess repentance towards God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, and to none other. So in other words, who are the proper subjects of baptism? Those who make a credible profession of faith, believable repentance, believable confession of faith. Indeed, the confessing of faith part is conveyed by uh, Matthew chapter 6, when the, it's describing the work of John the Baptist out in the wilderness, out at the Jordan River. And it says, and they came out to him, and they heard his message, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And if we could make a quick tour, and I invite you to do this, let's make a quick tour of the book of Acts. We, we saw here a moment ago in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is commissioning of them to go and make disciples. And then shortly after that, he ascended into heaven. And then the Holy Spirit came on the church. And then they do what he commissioned them to do. And notice their message. They kept preaching the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one. And they preached to the Jews first. And then they end up preaching to the Samaritans who were kind of a mix of Jew and uh, um, Gentiles. And then the message goes to the Gentiles. So let's do a survey here. Let's start with Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter preaches that sermon on Pentecost. 
And they say, what, what should we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice a few verses later, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Skip ahead to chapter 8, verse 12. The evangelist of Philip. He goes and preaches to a group of people. And when they, verse 12, and when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, men and women. Even Simon himself, verse 13, believed. And after he was baptized, he continued with, with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Notice the connection. The preaching of the gospel, the receiving of the gospel, they were baptized. Preaching of the gospel, receiving of the word, they were baptized. Stay in that chapter. Look at verse 36 and 38. At the beginning of that chapter, Philip preaches to an entire city, uh, and then he's kind of taken away by the Lord, and he finds himself with just one guy, an Ethiopian eunuch. In verse 36, and I, I love this passage because it's with the Ethiopian eunuch. He's just walking by, and the Ethiopian there is reading, presumably out loud, from Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. And Philip's like, you know, you know what it is that you're reading there? And he's like, I can't understand this. Somebody needs to explain this to me. And so Philip comes up and he explains to him. He begins with that passage of Scripture and he says, and all of this is pointing to Jesus. It just, by the way, that mystifies me. I've heard pre pre preachers say that Isaiah 52 and 53 isn't really referring to Jesus. Well, somebody's got to inform Philip because that, he said from that passage of Scripture, he showed him that that was Jesus. I digress. But notice what happens. Verse 36. And as they were going along the road. Now keep in mind, they're traveling from Jerusalem through the desert. They're toward Egypt so he could go back down to Ethiopia. And it says that he's traveling down on that road. Long, dusty, dry, dirty, dirt road. Except there's a big vadi or wadi that crosses right into that area that feeds into the Mediterranean Sea. I think they're there. Because he says, as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Notice how he's immediately associated. He goes, well, yeah, I want to be baptized. Oh, look at this, a, a river. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. I suppose... If sprinkling or pouring was baptism, Philip could have gone, oh, no, we don't need that thing. I got a jug of water here. I'll just pour a little on you. Again, I'm sorry. I can't help myself. Can't help myself. I just can't help myself. Acts chapter 9, verse 18. And immediately something like scales fell from the apostle's eyes, and he regained his sight, and then he rose and was baptized. The apostle Paul was baptized right then. Peter is preaching to Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, verses 47 and 48. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people, Cornelius and all of the believers in his household, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 11, verse 16. And I remembered of the word of the Lord how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Acts 13, 24, before his coming, they're, they're referencing the baptism of John the Baptist and saying that we're doing the same practice. John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance for all of the people of Israel. Acts 16, Lydia, verse 15. After she, Lydia, was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. They share the gospel with Lydia and for, with her entire oikos, her household. And she, and they believe, and she's baptized. Tells us right there. Acts 16.33. Paul and Silas are in the jail that night. Earthquake. Doors open. Philippian jailer goes, oh, I'm going to get fired for this or worse. And Paul stops and says, no, 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 no. We're okay. We're all here. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And he goes, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you, you'll be saved. And then verse 33, and he, the Philippian jailer, took them that same hour of that night and washed there Paul and Silas's wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Family here meaning, likewise, they also believed. Acts 18.8. Here's a, a big-time official in Corinth. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. Can you imagine the leader of the Jewish synagogue becoming a believer in Jesus Christ? How just upending that would be to that entire community? Acts 19, verses 3 through 5. Where the Apostle Paul is in uh, Ephesus. And he meets a bunch of disciples of John the Baptist. So presumably somebody who came down for the disciples of uh, John the Baptist's ministry in the Jordan River. And they were baptized. And then they went and made their way back home into Ephesus. They never heard anything about this guy named Jesus of Nazareth and the cross and the resurrection. Didn't hear about any of those things. And so uh, Paul bumps into them and he's like, oh, you guys are disciples of John the Baptist. Oh, yeah, we know John the Baptist. And then he starts to say, oh, well, then you know about Jesus. They're like, no, we don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And then verse 3, he says, and he said, to, well, then into what were you baptized? And they said, well, into John's baptism. And then Paul said, verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And so he says, and you guys got to believe in Jesus. And so on hearing this, the... They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they, they believe, oh, well, this, he's the one we're looking for. He's the one John told us we were waiting for. We believe in him. And then they were baptized. So all of this clearly suggests, we could do this more, the close, the close association between genuine profession of faith and baptism. And let me just go back to the two errors it's just not an option to say the thing that sig is signified as the important thing, the sign is, is um, not essential. Indeed, don't fall off on the other saying is the sign is the thing. No, the sign is not the thing. But don't fall into the other air of the ditch by thinking the sign, yeah, it's give or take. It's really the thing that signified. No. These were so closely associated with one another. 
So that is who, who is to be baptized, those who actually do make profession of faith. So that leads to the next question, question 99. Are the infants as such as are professing believers to be baptized? The Roman Catholic Church would say, yes, ex opere operato, by the work worked. You can't wash away the original sin unless they are baptized. No, we would say that's not the case. It's, it's empty and void and ineffectual apart from faith. Now, there are Protestants who, who do baptize their infants, and they would say, well, yes, because baptism is the sign of the new covenant, which was kind of the equivalent sign of the old covenant, sign of being in the old covenant community, which was circumcision. So baptism kind of replaces the circumcision in the later administration of the same covenant of grace that's the first administration and I would say, no, we, we, would, we would believe that only those who make a credible profession of faith are proper recipients of baptism. And the answer is that the infants of such as are professing believers are not to be baptized because there is neither command or example in the Holy Scriptures or certain consequence from them to baptize such. Sometimes this is referred to as the, the pedo-baptist versus the credo-baptist. Pedo meaning for child, so that we would baptize children. Credo would be, no, it's only for believers. And that's not an, quite an accurate description if we wanted to get into the weeds here. Because those Protestant churches that do practice pedo-baptism also practice credo. They will not baptize an adult unbeliever. They are credo. But they're not credo for the children of the credo. We would say, let's keep this simple and say, it's just credo. It's just credo. That's question 99. Question 100. And this gets to the how. Okay. How is it to be administered? Baptism is rightly administered by immersion. By dipping the whole body of the party in water, we... We saw this. You can look at this in Mark chapter, uh, Mark chapter 1 when Jesus goes to John who's baptizing in the Jordan River and Jesus goes and John goes, no, 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 you, I should, you should baptize me. And he goes, no, no, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then it says explicitly that he came up out of the water. Jesus went into the water and came up out of the water. Grammatically, it's kind of weird to say he went way steep and was poured upon. no. Submerging the whole body. John chapter 3, verse 23. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim, and it says, because water was plentiful there. You need plentiful water to do immersion. You don't need plentiful water to do non-immersion. And as we saw with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, they both went into the water. They went down into the water, it says. Plus, submersion is pictures the burial that is associated with that baptism. Remember Romans 6? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death. So how is it to be rightly administered? It is to be administered, I believe, by immersion. And so that's why we do this. 
I remember during COVID, oh, it's just a terrible picture. It just made me kind of cringe. You know what I'm talking about? I believe that they were at like a Catholic church and they, they were taking an infant. I mean, there's a lot in that picture to trigger me. There was a lot in this picture. The parents are holding the infant like this. And the priest was in his garments like this. They all have masks on and he has a squirt gun. I mean, I, I was just triggered by the whole thing. Like all of it. There was like four or five things that triggered me in that. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Did you see this picture? Oh, and I just went, no. No, baptism, the right. Like you get all of those wrong. But here's what's important. Let's get to the last one. Question 101. What is the duty of such who are rightly baptized? It is the duty of such who are rightly baptized to give up themselves to some particular and orderly church of Jesus Christ, that they may walk in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. And again, this is the proper response to those who have received this grace, right? We don't merit anything, any of this work. There's nothing that any of us have done that said, you know, they would be deserving. Where the, the Lord kind of looks down through the halls of history that he hasn't created yet. And before the foundation of the world looks and starts picking some people who goes, yeah, I think they would respond to this. Oh, yeah, we'll give them. No, he doesn't do that. It is purely by his grace that he would even have a, an elect people to call his own. That he would agree with the Lord Jesus Christ, make a covenant with Jesus Christ before Christ even came into the world. The Christ, the Son of God, God the Father saying, if you will go and live righteously under the law perfectly and yet suffer for the, the sins that you didn't commit but other people committed, I will raise you from the dead, vindicate you, and I will give you a people. And the Lord does so. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you're that people. You can think of salvation as God's gift to you, and rightly so. But in a very real sense, and I've said this before, if you are truly believer in Jesus Christ and part of his elect, you are a gift to Christ. And this is purely his work of grace, that he would save you and do this. And he gives us the means by which to convey this to us. You know how you're saved? Well, it wasn't your broken body and shed blood. It wasn't your bread broken and your wine. That's the work of Christ done for you. And we receive that and we're nourished by that. Nobody baptizes themselves. It's in the passive. You submit yourself. You believe in Jesus Christ and somebody else has to bury you. Do you know anybody who's buried themselves? I mean, maybe on accident and like some excavation error or something, they end up burying themselves. But nobody buries themselves. It happens to you. This is all the work of God. But yet, having received this work of God, he now calls us. You be a part of the church and you walk in the commandments and teaching of your Lord and the ordinance that God has given us. And you do so blamelessly. Amen? Acts chapter 2, when Peter finishes his sermon and he preaches and he says, Repent and be baptized, 
for the forgiveness of your sins. And it says that in verse 41, so all those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. They received his word and were baptized. And the next verse says, and this is a consequence, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. They received his word and then they walked in obedience to their Lord. Amen. Friends, this is what baptism is, and I'm glad we get to teach this today. And mark your calendars even now, June 25th. We will have our baptism, our annual baptism service. If you've never been baptized and would like to know more about it, you have professed faith in Jesus Christ, please come and speak to me. Uh, Not today because I have to go to Mother's Day lunch, but come and speak to me. I just heard Janet's voice in my head. Uh, With that, brothers and sisters, let's stand for a closing prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so much for your precious work, the shedding of your, your blood, the breaking of your body to save us, to redeem us. Father, we thank you that in your, um, your divine and sovereign plan of salvation that you have chosen us to be your people. And we gratefully receive that precious gift. And we're humbled by the acknowledgement that we did not do anything to obtain that or to receive that, that that comes purely by your grace. But we ask that you would, by your spirit, would enable us to walk in obedience to you and to obedience to your son. And to, uh, to live in light of our baptism that we are dead to sins, that we no longer can, should walk in them, that you have raised us to walk in newness of life. And we, we ask that you enable us by your Spirit to do that more and more so every day. And we will be careful to give you all thanks and praise. It is in Jesus' mighty name that we pray and all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Friends, here's our word of commission today, the words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, Christ is with you always to the end of the age. Together, amen. Amen. Peace be with you. Thank you.